following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. All right, Father, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, your kindness, your pursuit, your passion. Lord, to see us reconciled back to yourself. Lord God, that you have authored the concept of us calling you Abba, Father. Lord Jesus, it's your desire that you would make your bride radiant, that we would be your bride and body, that you are the head of the church, and we are simply honored to be your bride, your helpmeet, to be the one that helps you to realize the, the mission, the purpose, the plan that you have to rescue humanity from its broken and separated state to bring us back to life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning to your word, that um, that as we look at our spiritual baseline this morning and understand our depravity, our brokenness, our separation, our, the necessity, the passion uh, that, that you have to, to draw us back in, in the most intimate of ways, Lord, that we would understand that you have purposed our rescue, that you have made provision for our brokenness and our separation, that you have torn the veil from heaven to earth and invited us in with boldness and confidence to your throne of grace. And so we thank you that uh, that you are our ever-present help in time of need, and, uh, and you are so worthy to be worshipped. So help us to lift you up, Lord Jesus, that you might draw men unto yourself. I pray that you would save the sinner today, that you'd sanctify the saint, that you would rescue us from our broken paradigm that we would not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we might test and approve your good, perfect, and pleasing will. Lord, I pray you plant good seed in each heart that would come to fruition, that would bear 30, 60, 100-fold today, that you would do the good work that only you can do. Holy Spirit, you're the teacher. I am the frail instrument that you would be glorified and uh, that you would teach our hearts and uh, transform our lives so that we would shine for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm super excited. We're back in Genesis 3. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 10, barely got to 10. I'm going to give a quick review. Uh, I want to welcome those that are online and uh, so grateful for for you listening in and being a part of uh, our sermon series. Um, But uh, we are going to do a quick review. So if you feel like I'm going really, really fast, I am. Uh, on the first 10 verses here, because this is a form of review. And if any of that is um, is uh, of, of greater interest uh, and, and a slower perspective, please jump into that. Uh, if you go to our website, a couple of things are available to you. So all of our sermons are archived, so you can listen to last week's sermon. If uh, if if you want to catch the first part of this this two part uh, sermon, you can do that. Also on our on our website on the home page is our sermon notes. Um, our lifeline, our connection card, all of those things are available so you can follow along uh, with us this morning in this uh, in this particular message. So uh, let's look at the first 10 verses. Uh, I'm going to go through them one at a time here. Unpack the fall is what we're looking at. And it starts this way in verse one. Now the serpent, we learned last week that this is the devil, Satan, clearly depicted in uh, Revelation 12 and Revelation 20. If you look in Revelation 12, it talks about the fall of this ancient serpent. And it happened before creation, before man was on the planet. A third of the angels fell and uh, and and Satan uh uh, is depicted there, but here we see him showing up in, in as the role of the deceiver, the father of lies, the the one that is looking to to undermine God's authority, God's character, God's goodness, to be specific. And it says, now the serpent was more crafty. We we understood that this means he is subtly deceptive. That's what that word means literally. Then all. Other and please, please pay attention to this beasts of the field. So there are three categories of God's creation when it comes to animals. There's the birds and the fish. There's the, those things that creep on the ground. And then there's the, there's the beast of the field and livestock. And so, um, 
prior to the fall, it's interesting that this serpent is referred to as the beast of the field. That is very different than what he becomes after the fall based on the consequences of his actions. He is then diminished to his belly and to eat dust all the days of his life. But prior to the fall and the the consequences that are faced, he is a beast of the field. Very different. And what we understand is, is that the consequences of the fall has diminished creation in significant ways. And we're going to talk more about that. But what is, you're going to say, what's exciting about that? What's exciting about that is what God has purposed in our future through the redemptive work of the cross. Now we have a future that is filled with glorified bodies and not one tree of life, but two. And we're going to, it helps us to understand that we can't even fathom, we can't even imagine what we lost in the garden in the fall. But we're promised that, that, that this is to be restored through the work of Christ and his resurrection. And it's promised to us in the second coming. And there's a kingdom that is already planted in us that is simply a, a taste of the glory divine. Like it is a foretaste of all that God is going to reveal to us as he reveals himself. We are actually, it says when we see him face to face, we will know as we're fully known. How, how much does God know? Like how much does he know you? And we will know as we're fully known as we see him face to face. So this is just, this is exciting stuff. Great, uh, just promises that are, are yet to be realized. But we understand that the, the, uh, that the serpent was a beast of the field at this point. And it says that the Lord God had made, he's more crafty than all the others. And he said to the woman, now it's, again, it's interesting that he speaks to, he intentionally targets the woman, right? He says, did, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, what a, what a curious question, right? And what is he trying to do? He's trying to create confusion. He's trying to create doubt, right? I mean, this, is, this isn't even close to what the command revealed. The command said this, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall, you, shall, you shall not eat. And it says, when you eat of it, it didn't say if, God knew. Like when you eat of it, you will surely die, right? You will lose your life. And Jesus says, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the, like we lost, we lost our righteousness. We lost our, 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 our spirit connection to, and that's why, isn't it so good that what we lost we were given back in the Holy Spirit. Like, we lost our spirit. God gave us his. <laughs> That's how good he is, right? I mean, when, when, when someone loses something, do you have a desire just to, to give them the best of what they lost at your own cost? That's our God. That's what he does. But here the enemy is trying to create confusion. Verse 2 and 3 says, And the woman said to the serpent, um, we may not eat of the fruit of the tree of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that are in the midst of the garden. D- did God say that? If we go back to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, he didn't say that. In fact, if you want to get specific, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 9, what does it say? That not only is the tree of the knowledge and good and evil in the middle of the garden or the midst of the garden, so is the tree of life. So this is, this, you know, as we talked about last week, we got to know God's word. Not a paraphrase of it, not some version of it. We gotta know it. And there's a difference between the, the written word and the rhema, the word that the Holy Spirit has promised to write on our hearts. Do you know there's prophecy that is, that is relevant to our time frame that when the Spirit comes, He will lead us into all truth, Jesus said, and remind us of everything He said. But we're told from the prophets that no longer will we teach one another, that God will teach each one of us Himself. By his spirit. Wouldn't it be ideal if the author of the scriptures was like in our hearts and minds and was be, and was kind of instructing us personally? That's exactly what God has done in Christ. That's what he's done by depositing his spirit. We're told in 1 Corinthians 2, it might be 2 Corinthians, but we're told this in one of the Corinthians 2 that, um, that we have the mind of Christ because of the Holy Spirit. Like that, that's fantastic. But, but, you know, so often we, we, we go to commentary and other man's opinion. Do you, do you like secondhand information or would you prefer it right from the source? 
from the author. And that's what's promised to us, man. Like, have you ever read the, the Bible and gone, uh, what? <laughs> have you ever read and just been like, I, I'm, I'm a little confused here. I mean, kind of sharing the disciples' disposition at times, right? Like, have you ever been there? And you, do you know that we can call out? We're told in Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know, right? Do you think God wants to be a mystery on the revelation of his word? No, but he wants us to ask. He says, you have not, James says, you have not because you ask not. And so like God wants to give us his word. And when we are the, the instrument that shares his word, let's make sure like in this case with Eve. Now, I don't know if it's interpretation or or, or, or the fact that, that, that Adam didn't give her the right, in, the right information, right? But, but what we find here is she's misrepresenting God's word. And that's the, that, it loses its authority when it's not his word, but ours. And we see in this passage that she actually makes it more strict, which we have a tendency to do. We see it with the, with the Pharisees. You know, we take God's word, which is meant to be protective, and we make it restrictive. And now it's, it's, not, it's not love, it's law. And so we, we got to be careful about those things. And we got we got to let God's word like have the power that it represents when it's his word. It's filled with authority and potential for for transformation, for miraculous healing. And so she says that we can't eat of any tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall we touch it. Did God say that? No. And that's what we got to be careful about. Like, you know, I encourage you when you're, when you're sharing God's word with someone, open the scriptures, let them read it. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. You know, like that, that let, let's not give people a version of God's word. Let's give them his word and, and let it, let it really have its powerful effect. And then she says, lest you die, which was definitely the consequence. In verses four and five, it goes on and says, but the serpent said to the woman, here we see again in very short Time frame that he is he's targeting her. Why? Why? You will surely die. Oh, excuse me. He says, you will surely not. You will not surely die. And so, they, they, you know, it's a lie here because the enemy always wants us to focus on the physical rather than the spiritual. Right? He always wants us to focus on the physical. Like, you won't die. But, but when we lost our lifeline, when we lost our connection, to the Lord, like, man, we, we, we died that they died in that moment, but physically it manifested itself over time, but they, they were immediately in decay. And we don't, we don't understand that because we're, we're sharing even a greater sense of that decay now, but they lost everything. And now they're introduced to shame and guilt and nakedness. As Second Corinthians 5, we got in last week, that, that nakedness spiritually is we've lost our, our spiritual clothing, our righteous robe. We've lost, we've lost him. And because of that, we've lost everything. And so um, here in this deception, he says, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. My question is open to what? <laughs> Nakedness, guilt, shame, betrayal, death, loss? Yeah, yeah. But he always likes to make that sound good, doesn't he? And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the, you know, the, the sad thing is they were already in the image of God. He likes to try to make us believe that, that God's holding out on us or, or there's something that he's not, like as if God's not good and lavish and generous. He's really attacking God's character, his name here. And so my question to you is, is God good? And look, it's not good like we even think, good, like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> no, like it's the, the pinnacle of good, right? It's the epitome of good. Like, is God good? And then my question, another question is, can God be trusted? Right? But, but what about when it's really hard? What about when life's painful? What about when, when, when life doesn't make sense? Is God still good there? Is he still worthy to be trusted there? Well, let's look at verse 6. So when the woman saw, now, see, what we hear in this, this little word saw is that she's actually willing to look at it now. That's part of what the deception does is, is we're no longer going, that's forbidden. I don't want anything to do with that. Well, now we're curious. Right when we're deceived, now we're open to um, the possibility. Right, 
And now when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she had never considered that before, and that it was a delight to the eyes. Does sin sometimes look appealing? Right? Does, does our flesh have cravings? And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise? That's how we know that she's deceived, because now she believes that it can make her wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That's one of the saddest statements in this, this moment is, is that Adam is standing right there and says nothing. He doesn't stand up for God. He doesn't defend his word. He doesn't defend his wife, right? He, he chooses to participate. He cares more about what Eve wants than what God wants. Didn't Abraham fall into that trap? And he marries Hagar And we're still facing the conflict between the Arabs and the Jews today because of that choice. Now, does it mean, like as we'll talk about later, does it mean that we don't listen to our wives? We're we're clearly told, you know, husbands live in an understanding way with your wives so you don't hinder your prayers, right? Like, that's not what the Lord is saying. He's saying, like, you you wanted to please her more than you wanted to please me. And we talked about husbands, like, look, sometimes it, sometimes your wife's gonna want what, not what God wants, and you've got to be willing to be courageous enough, loving enough, bold, filled with faith to say, no, we, we can't do this. And Adam should have stood up here. He should have had a voice. He should have defended God's, God's commands. And instead, not only does he, he remain passive, he participates. And it's interesting, who does God hold accountable for the fall? Eve or Adam? The leader the one that was given dominion, right? Adam is responsible for the fall. Be careful what you look at. I think there's something to be said there. The eye is the lamp into the body. If the, if the eye is good, the whole body is good. If the eye if the guy's not good, the whole body is in trouble, right? It might taste good and was a pleasure to look at. I mean, we see this, you know, that when we start to entertain temptation, now we're, we actually see value in it. And, and there's craving that is created in that moment. We must be careful. Temptation always appears delicious to the flesh. Delicious, right? And in the, in the scriptures, the, the scriptures are honest. It says, you know, you know, sin feels good for a season, but the consequences are devastating devastating it always promises things it can't deliver wisdom is that what they got happy birthday princess just wanted to say it's eileen's birthday today by the way can we say happy birthday to eileen (laughs) happy birthday eileen Um, so it didn't deliver wisdom it delivered shame guilt loss death separation was that a good choice Guys, look, are we going to be tempted? Let me be clear. James makes this distinction. God tests for the purpose of, like, maturity, right? He tests in order to strengthen and in order to uh, to make us, well, James says it best, right? Count just verses 1 and 2, chapter 1. Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith. Of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you're mature, complete, not lacking in anything. But later in the same chapter, we're told that there's a tempter and God never tempts, right? But we've got to be careful. We've got to understand that the, the, the danger of, of giving into temptation is devastating and it's not just for us. It's for, it's for everyone else that's in our life as well. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened. Open to what? They knew that they were naked. They had lost their life. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So, and what we mean, what we understand by this, like, don't we, 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 we want to cover up our sin? We want to conceal our shame. We want to, we want to, we want to put things over, like, because we, you know, David said, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's, it's a constant torment. And so they were shamed now. 
and they lost their covering. They lost their life, as Second Corinthians 5 talks about. And so they, they, they attempt in their own way and wisdom, they, they attempt to cover up their, their sin and their shame and their guilt. Was it successful? Did it, did it, did it truly have the, the effect that they hoped? No. No. We see later in the passage. So what did their, their opened eyes reveal? Sin. Right? It didn't, it didn't, it didn't give them any benefit as the, as the enemy had promised. The knowledge of evil, their nakedness, their loss, death, separation from life himself. This is what, man, the enemy promises things he can't deliver. And then what we get, you know, and it's ironic as we see in this passage, mo- the moment we get what, 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 what is coming as a consequence of the fall or giving into sin, like he's the first one to go, ha! You know, he's the first one to, to laugh in our face at what, we fa- what we're dealing with. And then our Savior races in and invites us home and points to the cross, telling, telling us yet again, 70 times 7, I've come to rescue you from this. I have rescued you from all of this. So in verse 8 it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, what? What does it say? Hid themselves. Like, let me tell you what, what would have happened prior to this moment. We were talking in class this morning. I said, Mike, if you're away for a long time, they have two girls, Sierra and Hunter. Like, if you're away for a long time and you come home, what do you girls do? They come racing in. Right, but what if what if you came home if if your if your two girls like ran and hide hid, what would that tell you? Man, like that's what's happening here. It's so sad. Like it it was no longer like like you know I mean God's presence is something to be craved as a deer panteth for water. So my soul longs for you. Like, I mean, in his presence is the abundance of joy. Everything that we long for and need is found in him. And so, of course, we race to his, his side, to his presence. But when there is sin in our life, can you, anybody relate to this? And we see it when, when Christ showed up on the planet. We see it in Romans 1, like he was rejected. Because you know what? His light exposes our darkness. And what, is, what does darkness do when light shows up? Flee. Right? And yet, this light has come to expose so that we might reveal the truth. We might confess and repent and experience the healing that the cross has has purchased for us. But they hid. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know what Psalms 1611 says? It says, In your presence... It starts off like this. Um, you have made known to me the path, not paths. You have made known to me the path of life. Who's the path of life? I am the way, right? You have made known to me. And it says, and in your presence is the is fullness of joy. They They were running from that, not to that, from that. That's what sin does. It causes us to, to reject love, to, to hide from our own healing. It's interesting how God relates to this. So, so why did they hide from God? Sin makes us afraid of his presence, the light. The cross takes away our fear, our guilt, our shame. So my question to you this morning, are you hiding I mean, it's kind of, can we hide from God, right? But do we try? Let me tell you how we do it practically. We don't go to church. We don't get amongst the spirit of God, the kingdom of God, the body of Christ. I see it all the time. Like, is is that what God wants us to do? Or does he want us to confess our sins to a faithful and just God who is so good and so kind He's the prodigal father waiting on the horizon of our lives, just wanting us to make one step in his direction. And he races to us, reminds us of who we are, and restores the inheritance that we've squandered. Do you know that, like, we're told that he gives us back the fields the locusts have has eaten. <laughs> I, 
Am I alone? Is that awesome? Like, wow. You know, like, that's how good he is. Do you know that the prodigal son took, like, something that wasn't even his yet, thinking, stating that it was his, basically saying to the father, I don't care if you live or die, I just want what's your mind thinking, right? And he goes off and squanders his, this is in Luke 15, by the way, like he squanders his inheritance in wild living. We find out later that the brother speculates prostitutes, but he's just doing whatever his flesh wants and he ends up in a pig's pen, right? And and even the pods the pigs were eating weren't available to him, right? And and he says, you know, my my father's servants had it, had it way better than this. I'll just go home and say, you know, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just make me a hired hand, a servant. And that's really the attitude we need to have anyway. God, make me a servant. Make me a servant. And he comes home, and as he makes one step in God's direction, what, is, what does the father do? He, he humbles himself. That's, that's what an ancient understanding of first century Judaism would understand. He humbles himself, and the father races. This is what Jesus did. He left heaven and raced to us in order to rest, because there was no other hope. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So if you're hiding today, here's my counsel. Here's God's word's counsel. Run home. Run home. Race to the cross and understand that, that he's the prodigal father, that he's the one that's invited you to, like, with lavish love, that we're going to make mistakes, we're, we're, we're broken, fallen people, and we're desperate for his redemptive heart on display, passionately, like, like your sin has been paid for. I told you I was going to tell you some good news this morning. <laughs> it's been paid, it's paid in full. Now you just need to accept the gift that's been offered to you, this grace that is administered to our lives, to our spiritual account by faith. That's it, faith. Do you believe that Jesus died, that he lived he died and he rose again. That's the simple, glorious gospel. And if you profess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what does the Bible declare? You will be, what David? Saved. Man, that just sounds so simple, right? But I, I, trust me, faith is not simple. It's childlike, but it's not simple. And it must be sincere. Verse 9 and 10 goes on to say, but the Lord God called to the man. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't go, hey, Eve, what have you done? He calls to the man. Why? Because that's who he gave dominion to. That's who he gave a help meet to for the purpose of, of subduing the earth. Now, what does that mean? Like when we understand that rule in that moment, we've turned it into a four-letter word. In that moment, rule was, the only understanding they had a rule was God's beautiful, fantastic, provisional, protective, loving, kind rule. They had a perfect example of what, what they were called to do because they were experiencing his. And so... Adam was called to be this, this protective, this, this human agent. And he was given, listen, please hear this. He was given leadership, not ownership. That's a big deal. Because it still all belongs to who? But he was given leadership. And this leadership was called to be servant leader. If you want to be great, become the least of these. Become a servant. If you really want to be the greatest, become a slave. Wash feet. Like that's, that's God's economy. That's his kingdom mentality. And he says, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God asks a series of questions. My question is, did God know where he was? So what, why does God ask us questions? Why did Jesus, was his ministry filled with questions? Like he asked questions. Did he have the answers to all of them? Absolutely. So why did he ask the questions? So that we would have the answers that he wanted us to have. He was asking this question of them because they needed to know where they were. And he said, I heard the sound of you. This is what Adam's response was. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was what? Oh, that's so sad. They didn't know that before the fall. There was no fear. I mean, there would have been a reverence and awe, sure, but there wasn't, there wasn't some phobia of God. This is the effects of sin. Because I was naked 
I hid myself. And we do this too. We, we cover up. We hide. And then as we'll see in just a moment, we start blaming anyone, including God. Did, did God not know where Adam was? Why does God call Adam? He's leader. He calls him home, right? He's calling him to confession and repentance is what he's calling him to do because that's, that's the path back to his presence. The Lord initiates our rescue. That's what I love about this. This is my favorite part of this moment. Look, they would have no orientation to God anymore. They're afraid of him. They're ashamed of themselves. Who's the one that takes the initiative? God comes to them. He brings his presence back to him, to them and calls them out of their darkness and into his marvelous light. Sin separates. We must see this in 1 John. You know what 1 John says? It says, don't sin. Don't do it. Don't do it ever. Run from the occasion. But he says, if any of you sin, we have an advocate before the Father. And in verse 9, we're told, confess your sins to a faithful and just God who will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from what? All unrighteousness. Like that's how sufficient the cross is. Verse 11 says, and he said, who told you you were naked? Another question that God asked. Now, have you ever stopped for a moment and asked this question, wanting an answer? Like, did the serpent tell them they were naked? No. Have you gone back and looked at the the, the verses? Who told them they were naked? They told each other. That's what you'll find. Like, you know what happens in the, when, when we have sin in our life? We start to be critical of each other. We start to point out each other's nakedness. That's who told. That's who revealed. Because it says, and then they knew they were naked. They, they had a knowledge of their nakedness. Interesting. Have you eaten of the tree of, the, of which I commanded you not to eat? Guys, again, does God not know the answer to this question? Of course he does. So what's he doing? He is beckoning them to own their sin. That's the only thing we can do is just say, agree with God that we, we've fallen short of his glory and, 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 and throw ourselves on the mercy seat. And we have such an advantage at this stage of, of God's providence. Like we know God's posture. We know God's response. We know what he's going to do, what he's done. We know he's made provision. Like what keeps you? Can I ask this question? What keeps you from just confessing your sin rather than hiding or cover-upping or cover-upping? That's a good one. Or blaming someone. Like why? You know, one of the marks of maturity is is the time between fail and and reconcile. The timeline just gets shorter when you understand. And you know what the catalyst is? Knowing the heart of God. It's just knowing his heart. Knowing his disposition. Knowing the sufficiency of the cross. It's so good. Lots of good news today. Why does the Lord ask these questions? So that they would know the answers. Did anyone tell them that they were naked? See, they became self-conscious. Is that, is that an epidemic in our culture? Self-awareness and self-conscious? Absolutely. Like what we need to be is God-conscious, right? We don't even need to have self-confidence. I don't, I, I'm just telling, I have no confidence in me, but I have a ton. I have infinite confidence in him. And that's what brings great assurance and boldness. I mean, David stood before a giant nine plus feet tall and said, this is already over. <laughs> it's over. His confidence wasn't in him. It's, it's what it, it, God's resume in his life. It's awesome. Do you struggle to take responsibility for your sin? You know, the antidote to this is the heart of God. He loves you. He's not mad at you. Right? Now, does he hate sin? Oh, he hates sin. Wouldn't you, if, if it had the effect on those you loved that it has? Wouldn't you hate it? 
And guys, you know, he wants us to share his disposition there. He wants us to hate sin. Do you know one of the ways we tell God that we love him and that he's Lord is through obedience? And one of the dispositions or even just our our intention is, is that we share his hatred of sin. We hate it because because of what it separates. It hurts. Now, please understand, we, we believe and know that once we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, we can never be separated from his love again. Never. Once it's a genuine, once we're genuinely saved and sealed, it's a deposit. God's not an Indian giver. Like, but, but we can, but our fellowship can be compromised. Right? We're no, we, we, we will always be a son or his daughter, but it doesn't mean that <laughs> there's, there's some things we got to talk about. Confession, repentance, reconciliation, restitution. Right? Do you, do you do what you're told not to do? Yeah, probably. Why? Now, here's what I want us to understand. You are wrapped in a skin that has a... There's three enemies of the saint, right? There's, there's the, the world's paradigm, which is the enemy's ideal. And then there's the sinful nature that craves what it ought not do. It craves a rebellious posture and initiative towards God. And that's why we're called to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him. That's, that's why we're, we're, we, 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 Paul says, I am crucified with Christ that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul makes that very personal, me, me. He died for me. But we should share God's disposition, his hatred of sin because of its cause and effect. In verse 12, it says, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Now, if you don't see what's being stated here, he is basically blaming God for this whole thing. Like, you remember, you gave me her and she, you know, like, that's going on here. And she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, eventually he comes to the point and says, I ate. But (laughs) there's a whole lot of blaming going on before that. Do we do that? Listen, we have this tendency as humanity, and there's a mix in all of us that we either cover up, hide, or we blame. And we all have a mix of that. And really the call is to repentance and confession because you're going to make mistakes. Has anybody ever told you that? You're going to make mistakes. Isn't there a little freedom in that? That's not a freedom to make mistakes. That's just a freedom to not live in this, 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 this paradigm of like perfection. That's not, you know, like I would say sometimes realistic. Like grace isn't a safety net. Grace, we don't abuse it. We don't treat it as a license to sin by all means. Like we share God's disposition to be perfect as he is perfect, to be holy as he is holy. But we understand that God, God's made provision on purpose because he, under, he, he knows. But it's never our intention. So why do we often blame God? Is he ever at fault? Hello? Is he? I mean, Job, Job said, I want an audience with God because I'm going to prove that I'm righteous in this and I didn't do anything wrong. Right? And, and, and even in that statement, he did something wrong. You know, like, I mean, and, and what he wants is advocacy. And do you realize that we've been given advocacy in Christ? He's our mediator and our advocate now. Like we have one that sits before the throne of grace that tasted everything that we tasted and yet was without sin. And he's, he's the advocate. He's our defender. Like, that's awesome, man. Like, but God is never in the wrong. God, God, God is, is God good? Is he worthy of your trust? Like, one of the things we have to fight in the moments where we're, we're in pain, we're in agony, we're, we're facing, you know, and yet is he sovereign? Right? Like, he said, you know, Job said this. He said, you know, his wife said, curse God and die. And he said, should we accept good from the Lord and not evil? And it says in everything that he said, he did not sin. Like, like God will author things into our life, but he never harms without the objective of healing. That's his goal. He, he never humbles without the, the objective to exalt. Like we have to trust God's heart, but it might not feel good in the journey. As Rob was talking about. Please don't blame God. But why do we blame others? Why do we blame others? 
I think maybe one of the biggest answers to that is we just don't want to take responsibility. Did Adam have a choice? Absolutely. Absolutely. And he made a wrong one. Right? And and look, just because others, like, how many parents have said, just because they jump off the cliff doesn't mean you have to. Right? I mean, like, is peer pressure a real deal? You know, one of the things that we fail at is we measure ourselves by ourselves. This is what we're told in the scriptures. Like, oh, I'm better than that guy. You know, as if the standard is whoever's the best in the room. Well, maybe the standard is the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, which is imputed to us by faith. And that can be our, that can be our reality when we trust God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 13 says, then the Lord said, God said to the woman. Now, again, the, the Lord is now kind of addressing each one in, in, in a progressive way. What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So here's the thing. She, she acknowledges that she was deceived, right? But she's still blaming the serpent for something that she did and initiated and rather than just owning it. Do you, do you believe today that there is freedom in owning your sin and acknowledging that, that he's the only one that can solve our dilemma and, and relieve us of the debt that it, in, it, it has? Do you believe that this morning? I hope so. I hope that today that you won't leave here without confessing and repent. Like that, you know, we're, John the Baptist said to the, to the Pharisees, he says, produce fruit. Called them a brood of vipers. But then he said, like, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. How do we produce fruit? By walking in repentance. Like, to keep something means you constantly are doing that. Right? Because who needs to change, God or me? So he says, um, in verse 14 and 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, because now, you notice he doesn't ask the serpent anything. Like, what have you done? You know, he's not looking for repentance from the serpent, right? So, oh, the devil, he knows his disposition and his destiny. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. See, he's in the category of livestock and beasts of the field. He's not a creeping thing, but he's about to be, right? On your belly you shall go, on the, uh, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this, this has a prophetic expression into what Christ would accomplish on behalf of humanity, right? And the Lord asked no questions of the serpent, as I mentioned. Now, I want to read something to you because I think it's relevant. The fall changed creation. And I mentioned this earlier, that uh, that the fall changed creation. But, but I want you to hear it from Romans 8. I, I just think it's just, it's marvelous. Listen to what this says, and I'll, um, I'll pick up in verse 18, go through 25, if you're following with me. Paul says, I, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the glorified church, right? For the creation was subjected to futility. Now, this is what we're talking about this morning. Not willingly... But because of him, speaking of God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free. This was God's hope from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Like how beautiful is that? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions, for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For, for who hopes for something that he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's just, uh, the best the best commentary on scripture is that's right that is absolutely right so 
Here we see in verse 16, it says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply the pain in childbearing. Sorry about that, ladies. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband. And that is that often gets misrepresented. If you read in, in different translations, you'll understand the Hebrew here. You're in some in some it says your desire will be contrary to your husband. This is not for him. This is for his position. That that in your that, that that ladies in their sinful nature will want to usurp their husband's leadership. That's what it's saying. Now, if you don't believe me, I'll I'll I'll, I'll prove it to you, right? So, and, and he's and he said and he goes on to say, for, for your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule again, not ownership but leadership over you. So, some of the points I want to make before I get to that point is this: disobedience is painful. Right? That's an obvious statement to what's occurred here. And the fall created conflict. Relational conflict between us and God and, 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 and within each other's relationships. We see it within the context of marriage. Now, men, before you start going, yeah, try to take my leadership. Like, before you start getting there, let's understand there are, there are levels of, like, first of all, who's the head of the church? Do you ever struggle within your flesh? To let Jesus rule. Look, it, this, this, you know, we're all the bride of Christ, and I don't know about you, but there are moments as a, as a man, right, as the bride of Christ, that you know I, I want to do me, right? It's in our nature to to want to to have to have control, right? To, 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 we don't want anybody telling us what to do, right? But th- th- this is specific here, and let me let me unpack this for you. If you go one chapter further. Okay, and it's the exact same Hebrew word that's used here. And I want to unpack chapter 4. Listen to what chapter 4 says. And what's going on here is um, Cain and Abel are born to Adam and Eve. Listen to what it says. Now Adam knew Eve. This is talking about intercourse. And, and his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Man, we should be saying that kind of stuff all the time. Like, it only helped. It only happens with the help of the Lord, right? And, and it says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper. He was a shepherd. And Cain was, the, and he was a farmer and a worker of the ground. In the course of time, just in time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Okay. In contrast, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So what's, what's going on here is Abel brings his first and his best, and God is pleased, right, and accepts his offering. Cain, in the course of time, just brings his leftovers, just brings, here's, here's, here's some, right, and God's not pleased with that, and but just basically tells Abel, like, I mean, Cain, he just says, but if you do what is right, won't you too be accepted? Like, I mean, so what does he call, what's, what's the statement there? Repentance, Right? But, but this is talking about, like, guys, when we make offerings to the Lord, and we should be doing that in every occasion of life, praise offerings, thanksgiving, like all, you know, but, but we, th- this precedes the law. You know, like, th- th- this is giving God first and best. And we should always do that. You know, you, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give out of reluctance or compulsion. But our, haven't we been given, like, too much is given, much is required. Like, that this should be our, our, our posture, our heart. It shouldn't be something that we, that we have to do. It's something we get to do. Right? And so it goes on to say this. Um, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? Um, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And that's a rhetorical question with the obvious answer, yes. And if you do not do well, listen to what it says. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. That's the exact same Hebrew statement that was made in back in chapter three, 3 as far as the woman's desire for her man. What is sin's desire? When it says here, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Exact same statement. I think it's helpful. I think it's extremely healthy and helpful for us to acknowledge that we have this in our sinful nature. 
I think it's, I think it's extremely helpful that because we have to fight what we know rather than what we don't know. Does that make sense? It's so important that we understand that we are, we, our nature wants like, because it's, it's connected to the evil intentions, right? It wants authority. It wants God's throne. It wants, it wants control. And we see it already being manifested in our culture within marriage. And so it's, it, I think it's extremely helpful. So it says here, same thing, your desire shall be for your husband. In some translations, contrary. It, when it says for, it means usurp, right? And he shall rule over you. But let me, just let me remind again, like, like this rule is like God's not turning over the ownership of anything. He, he is giving you leadership. And from his perspective, that leadership is not supposed to be over, but under for the benefit of those you lead. That's what Jesus did for us. He became poor that we might become rich. He who had no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the sacrificial love of God. So verses 17 through 19 says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. This is not a reason not to listen to your wife, man. Okay, what, the, the same thing was stated to Abraham. right? But what it's saying is, Because you listened to her instead of me. You, because you listened to your wife and did what I told you not to do, you shall not eat of it. That's what I told. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles shall bring, bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Don't miss this. This was the food of animals up until this point, not, not of humans. You shall eat the plants of the field. Before, it was the fruit of seed-bearing plants. Now it's I don't know why. You can look into that. That's pretty interesting. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Right? That's the truth. We know that. When, when the breath of God is removed from us, what happens to these bodies? Right? So what was the Lord's rebuke here? It was that you listened to your wife rather than listening to me. Right? The fall cursed the, the, excuse me, the, call, the, the fall caused pain and problems, right? That were not native to, to paradise. Now our destiny is dirt as promised. In verse 20 and 21, it says, the man called his wife, wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, all of all living. And the Lord God made, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is probably the most redemptive verse in all of the Old Testament. Like this is pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lord made a sacrifice to cover their shame, their guilt. And it was a temporary solution that Jesus would permanently remedy. Right? And, and listen to what Hebrews 9.22 says. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And, you know, so many people can just glance over this. Oh, God made them close. But in order for it to be skins, what, what, what happened? What, something had to happen. An animal had to die. I mean, we could probably make a speculation that it was probably a lamb or two. And so in Leviticus 17, 11, it says, for, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, only God can cover our sins. Only God can do that in a, in a, in, in a permanent way, in a one-time offering. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that good news? Wow. And then verses 22 and 23, as we wrap up here, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. That's another Trinitarian statement right there. Us, not me, right? It's like one of us. Let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. Father, Son, and Spirit, right? 
So he says, uh, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And that didn't work out well for him, by the way. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the garden, the grounds, excuse me, from which he was taken. Now, so many people miss this, this powerful nuance here. You know why God sent them out of the garden? So they wouldn't have access to what? The tree of life. So that they would not remain in this broken, decayed state and live forever. It's an act of mercy. Any time God sends, sent anything, for God so loved the world that he sent. Anytime God sends, see, the problem, we, if we don't know the heart of God, we, we miss these nuances that are so beautiful. This is an act of mercy. This is an act of grace that we would not stay in this decayed, broken, fallen state forever. Later in chapter 6, he says, I will not contend with man any longer. His days will be 120 years because every thought and was only evil all the time. And it grieved God that he had made man. And then the flood was his next step. So why did the Lord send them out of the garden? As explained. And then our final verse, verse 24. He, God, drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the worship team is coming, and I want to mention this. Um, there, the Bible in its most simplistic um, expression, description is really three gardens. You have the Garden of Eden, paradise, right? And then you have the Garden of Gethsemane, God's redemptive work and plan, his, his atoning sacrifice, yielding to the Father's will in order to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then you have the garden that is described again in uh, Revelation 22. So it's, it's interesting to me that you have the garden in chapter 1, you have the middle garden that, 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 that takes death and turns it back to life, and then you have the garden in the last chapter of the Bible. And let me, let me read this to you. So, Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle, middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Guys, like we have, we have no idea what we, what we lost in the garden. It's so, we, we only understand our current context. We don't understand the, the, the loss, the diminishing effect of what we, you know, C.S. Lewis believed based on what we read this morning, like C.S. Lewis believed that the animals talked before the fall. I mean, look, they're not surprised that this serpent is talking to them. Not at all, right? That that's part of what was lost. You ever looked at a dog when you're talking to him and they're like, I mean, it's like they want to talk back, right? I mean, like, and C.S. Lewis believed that so significantly that he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? And, and believe it, like, like, that's just a taste of like how, how much we lost Right, but then we see this. Do you know that these that, that we don't get one tree back, we get two. Is God good? And do you know that these trees produce twelve different types of fruit, one for each month of the year? How cool is that? Right, like I mean, like every month there's a different fruit on the same tree, and that its leaves have the have the medicinal purpose of healing the nations, guys. God is good, right? God is so good. So let's do this. In light of all that we've heard this morning, let's, let's take the opportunity to, to confess our sin, to race to the cross that has purchased our redemption, our, our reconciliation. Our re- you know, he, he became our restitution, right? Like he did it all so that we can be brought back into his presence and experience the abundant life and, the, and, the, and this exceeding joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. We, we're weak without his presence. And so as we finish this last song, like it's my conviction that we would 
be even more undignified than this. Like we would sing and dance and praise in ways that only make sense for the redeemed, right? Like that we would just, we don't care what other people, listen, just make a joyful noise. You know what I mean? Who cares? Like just tell God how much you love him through your song. But, but in the midst of this, make sure that if, if it's necessary, like would you please confess your sin? Trust that the cross was enough to cover saturate your life in love and grace and mercy and then race into his presence knowing that that freedom has bought us all that he is, right? So let's stand and close our time together. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.